welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 2nd of November 2014, entitled, Who Controls Your Life? And the Bible reading is taken from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 28. Here's Brother Craig Halstead. Well, good afternoon, I hope. I may, I may uh, have to uh, increase the volume and wind the button right up to about 10 this, this, uh, this afternoon because um, to keep myself awake, because when I've had my Sunday food, I'm usually, and I'm sort of wondering around, looking among the congregation, thinking how many might be feeling like that themselves. I think it's, uh, you know, I actually think it might seem strange to some people, but you always find it easier to nap on a Sunday afternoon compared to any day of the week. The Lord said it is a day of rest, and I believe God designed it that way. You know, uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, when we were in Bible college together, um, my wife and I, um, there's eight years between us, am I right there? Seven, eight, whatever it is. Um, I, I'll confess something. I thought she's this, this girl from, from Korea. She's not very friendly. She's a bit stuck up. And I never told her that. And she was thinking, this guy is rough and uncouth. And I didn't like her and she didn't like me. And I found it difficult to borrow a pen from her in class. Because I thought she's going to be rude and unpleasant to me. And she thought, I want to talk to him. He's selfish and and he's rude and he's uncouth. Very discerning. Um, (laughs) And if you'd have told me, you know, I actually think at that time, I find it difficult to believe that the Lord was not on his throne having a chuckle. And I really mean that. Him seeing me there and her there thinking Ooh, to one another, you know, Oof. and little did we know, well, here we are with three children married. Um, you know, in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, um, the Lord says, doesn't he, chapter 55, for my ways are not your ways. Neither your thoughts, my thoughts, saith the Lord. And you know, I've often found, and this is aside from the sermon, it's just a thought for you, for you this afternoon, but I have often, often found in my Christian life, if you've ever done a, a test, a multiple choice test, where you have a series of questions, and then afterward, you get your answer. So you've got a 25 25% chance of getting it right, or 75% chance, whichever way you look at it. You know, for example, what is the capital city of America? And then A will say Alabama, B will say Los Angeles, C will say New York, and D will say Washington, D.C. So you know the answer is one of them. And I've often found as a Christian that when I've tried to speculate in my mind and sort of surmise as to what God would have for me down the road. I've had like a multiple choice each time. Well, you know, when God does this in my life, or, you know, when God does that in my life, then he he might do it this way. Or maybe you could do it this way, or maybe you could do it this way, or maybe you could do it that way. And oftentimes it's none of the above. God has something totally different than I ever in my life expected. And I'm sure you would attest to the same, that God's ways are certainly not our ways. Turn, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 9. 
This morning we considered the words, the words of Joshua to the Israelites as he gave his farewell to them, and the covenant that, that then the Israelites made to God in response to his words. And what I want us to consider this afternoon is the life of the Apostle Paul. And of course, it all concerns his conversion here in chapter 9 of Acts and the great and grand transformation that occurred in this man's life from here on. And there are certain things that I believe we can deduce from this chapter of Scripture and certainly apply to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just ask, Father, as we have gathered together this day as God's people, and Lord, as we can talk with one another and share with one another and fellowship in Christ, Lord, and, and, and just rejoice in what you've done in our lives. We understand that the Christian life is not an easy one, Father, that there are trials and tribulations. But Lord, that characterizes, those things characterize the lives of all your people. Lord, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the great hall of faith, speaks of the great trials and tribulations of all your people down through time. Yet, Lord, in spite of these things, you tell us we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Father, we do not have any reason, Lord, to be discouraged. Father, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and two-thirds of the angels on our side. So why need we sit down and cry, Father? Lord, we're glad we have you. Lord, as we consider the hymn we've just sung, it is well with my soul. And as believers in Christ, whatever befalls us in this life, whether it is the loss of loved ones, the loss of a spouse, financial loss, physical loss, loss of reputation through no fault of our own, or whatever trial and tribulation might come our way in this life, Father, we can say because of Christ, it is well with my soul. We now ask for your blessings as we consider this chapter, Acts 9, and we pray that you would truly move. Father, again, these people are not here to listen to me. I'm not here to impress them. Father, they are gathered here together, Lord, to listen to you through your word. And Lord, we pray that the spirits of God, the Holy Ghost, would have free reign and that he would truly arrest each and every one of us. Father, if the spirits of God is not present among us, then this is a mere social club. But we pray, Father, that you would truly get a hold of us all and speak to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll go through to verse 22 to get the passage in context. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hast sent me that thou mayest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples that, which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them that called on this name at Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. A woman received a very expensive and very rare pair of gloves from a family member. When she received them, she could see that they were indeed expensive and rare, and so she cherished them that much that she decided that she would not wear them because they were so delightful. She placed them in a, a bedside cabinet or a drawer of sorts and decided that she would keep them there, and perhaps one day in the future she would pull them out and use them. But until then, these gloves were so impressive and precious that she just couldn't wear them, regardless of the temperature. So she placed them in the drawer, and with that said, they were pretty much forgotten. And she went about her business month after month, year after year. A while down the road, 
when she was in her bedroom and she was cleaning through drawers and, and, and going through different items in the bedroom that needed to be dusted and cleaned and moved and tidied and so forth, she stumbled upon these gloves. And she decided to pull them out of the drawer. It suddenly occurred to her that she'd never placed her hands in these gloves. She'd never actually tried them on. And so in a sense, she thought she'd put them on her hands just to even see that they'd fit. Of course, if they didn't, it didn't make any difference because she'd had them so long. She wouldn't be able to go and get them refunded or exchanged. But that really didn't matter to her because the gloves were so impressive. So she took hold of one of the hands of the gloves and placed her full hand in it with her fingers right to the very ends of each finger and thumb. And to her amazement, she discovered that in each thumb and in each finger, on each glove, there was something in there. And she didn't realize that all along, of course, that these, these items were in each finger, thing, finger and thumb. And each item felt the same. So she took it upon herself to take each glove and turn them inside out. And when she did, she discovered that in each thumb and in each finger was a $10 bill. $100 found in each of the fingers, in addition to the gloves themselves. And I truly believe that in some ways this illustrates the Christian life for you and I. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, would sit here this, this afternoon and would say to ourselves and to one another, I know Christ. It's one thing for us to know him, to claim to know him, and to, to be truly born again. But do, have we realized, have we come to that place of realization where we truly experience, as Christ talked about, that abundant life? He said, I've come to give you life, to give it you more abundantly. Have we truly realized the life that God has for us. An abundant, rich life of power of, of, and the presence of God, a life that this world will never understand. Or, 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 or would each of us sit there and say, you know what, I'm a Christian, but I'm far from satisfied with where I am. All too often, my life is one of defeat and discouragement. Let's look with, here at Acts chapter 9. And the title of my sermon is, Who Controls Your Life? And that's a question that is for each and every one of us. I want to ask you this afternoon, who controls your life? It's a question for myself as well, who controls my life? And I believe as we address this question, we will discover from this passage that indeed there is a life that God wants for us, that in a sense goes beyond being saved. It is one thing to come to know Christ and to be born again and to be forgiven of one's sins. But do you realize that everything that God has for you as a Christian, everything that God has for you for time and eternity, he gave to you when you got saved. There are certain churches and groups and denominations that would tell you, you know, you get saved and then a bit further down the road, there's this second blessing, as if you get second, saved a second time. But the Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible teaches you when you got saved, everything you need spiritually for time and eternity, God gave you when he 
place the Holy Spirit within you. But perhaps for some of us, maybe for most of us, it's like that pair of gloves. By faith, we take that gift from God, but never or not for a long time do we truly experience and realize the full measure of the grace and blessedness of what God has truly given to us. Acts chapter 9. We're going to consider from the life of the Apostle Paul here just exactly what God did this in this man's life and how he transformed this man into a mighty tool that he could use for his glory. First of all, I want to see from the Apostle Paul's life, or Saul of Tarsus as he was called then, we see in verses 1 and 2, with regard to Saul's life, a life consumed by ruthless ambition. This is speaking of Saul of Tarsus. Verse 1, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord, uh, the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, excuse me, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now Saul's early life was marked by hatred for those who followed Jesus Christ. He held the position of a Pharisee, and like his predecessors, he vigorously opposed the spreading of the gospel, even unto death. The Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, that if he found any of this way, any of this way means those that were followers of Christ, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Turn, if you would, please, to uh, go back to chapter 8 and verse 3, which gives us some insight into the kind of character that Saul of Tartus was before he came to know the Lord, the kind of villain this man basically was. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. It says of him, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them unto prison. If you were in a home at a prayer meeting or at a Bible study or praying in public and Saul was around with his bully boys, with his heavies, you would be manhandled and taken away by hook or by crook. This was a man not to be messed with. He was a very influential, very powerful man with strapping men with him who would think nothing of beating you and taking you away on account of your witness for Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, please, to Galatians 1.13. Gives us some insight into, again, the man he was before Christ came into his life. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaking in this letter, For ye have heard of my conversation in, in time past of the Jews. Conversation, of course, meaning his, his lifestyle. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. A ruthless, violent, aggressive, dangerous man. 1 Timothy 1.13. Again, speaking of himself, he says, Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, and injurious. He injured people. He inflicted physical suffering and pain on people. He was a, 
He would, in, in, in today's terminology, he would have been guilty of, uh, what do they say, GBH, ABH, aggravated body assault or whatever it is. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This was a violent man who thought nothing of arresting and beating and torturing and accosting and taking Christian people away and ensuring that they were imprisoned because they were followers of Christ. He headed for Damascus, having obtained authority from the chief priest in Jerusalem because he had heard that there were believers in Damascus. In Damascus, Remember, he was a ruthless man. He was a single-minded man. And his mission was to arrest and stop Christians. And in the process, he thought he was doing God's work by doing this. And he headed for Damascus because he'd obviously heard there were Christians there. And he would arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem and ensure that they were imprisoned. Paul was a man whose life, or rather Saul of Tarsus was a man whose life was consumed by ruthless, violent ambition. And I want to ask you this morning, Christian, what's consuming your life? If you claim to know the Lord, what is it that's consuming your life? Is it Christ? Or is it people? Is it pleasures? Is it the internet? Is it Facebook? Is it games? Is it shopping? Is it finances? Is it a relationship? Whatever it be. But what is it, my friend, that is consuming your life? You may argue and say, I'm not opposed to Jesus Christ, and I do not persecute his people. That may be the case, but are you resisting the will of God in your life, Christian? Or maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You've attended church for years, but you still don't know Christ. Are you resisting God's offer of eternal life to you? This day, Paul was a man whose life was consumed when he was Saul of Tarsus by ruthless ambition. Are you resisting the will of God in your life, my friend? You know, you remember the story in 1 Samuel of, 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 of another Saul, King Saul of Israel, how he repeatedly rebelled against the Lord over and over again. That it came to the point where the prophet Samuel and said to him, you've rebelled against the Lord repeatedly. Do it trying to do the job of a priest. He was told to wipe out his enemies, but he decided to keep the flock. He thought he would do God's way, God's work his way. To the point that the prophet Samuel came to him and said to him, Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as idolatry. He says, because you've rejected God's will, you've rejected obeying the Lord and you want to do your own way, the Lord's now rejected you from being king. And from that day on, it was the beginning of the end for, for King Saul. It was the beginning of the end and we all know the story. But Saul was a man whose life was consumed by ruthless ambition. And in the process, all he was doing was resisting the God who had created him, that had created this world. But secondly, I want us to see a life confronted by Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
The mere mention of Saul's name instilled fear and trepidation in the hearts of those early Christians. If you'd have been a believer back in those days, listen, if you'd have been a believer back in those days and you'd have heard the name, the mere mention of the name, Saul of Tarsus, he's in town. Saul of Tarsus, I've heard that he's coming this way. Your knees would have been trembling. A man who ruled by fear or exercised his influence by fear. Yet his determination and fearsome reputation were futile when he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus Christ. Do you realize this, this is what he saw? Do you realize on his road, on his trip to Damascus, he was confronted by the Son of God, risen from the dead? Now we know that Christ had already risen from the dead. But he came to face to face with the God of the universe in the face of Christ. You see, some people mistakenly view God as some kind of absentee landlord who is remote from the world and unaware of their own individual lives. Do you know Charles Adam Spurgeon? Do you know what he said with regard to you and I that know him? Charles Adam Spurgeon said, he that numbers all the stars and counts them all by name is in no wise, in no danger of forgetting his own children. You realize that, Christian? He knows every grain of sand on every beach and in every desert. He knows all the stars by name. He can count them all. That being the case, he's in no, way, in no danger of forgetting you and I that are, that are saved. But God is no absentee landlord, and he's very much aware of what's going on, not only in our lives, but what is going on in the back streets of every town and of every city in this nation. He's fully aware of the skullduggery and the backhanders and the underhanded conversations and the agendas in Parliament. He knows everything that goes on. Scripture says, For his eyes are open, are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. The Lord is everywhere at all times. He who thinks the Lord is unaware is himself totally ignorant. The current atrocities in our world have not escaped the attention of God. You know the situation in the Ukraine. You know what we've seen over the past year in, 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 in Iraq and Syria with, uh, with ISIS. These men committing these atrocities, committing the most heinous acts against other human beings. They think they're doing that in the name of God. What they don't understand is that God sees it all and they're going totally against the will of God and will stand before the Lord for it. The Lord unexpectedly intervened in Saul's life and he's able to do that in anybody else's life. Now we know that the Lord is not going to visibly appear to people. The Lord does not operate that, like that in this day and age. The Lord reveals himself to people through the preaching of the word in our day and time. And you know the Lord is able to intervene in your life. I remember telling the story a number of months ago when I preached at another church. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. When I was a teenager, I was only about 18, and I got the opportunity to visit a church in Dallas, Texas. I'd never been to America before. So suddenly I get the chance to go to Dallas, Texas. It was rather overwhelming to see these humongous belt buckles and these humongous boots and these, these accents and these loud people. And I, I, to be quite honest, as a 17-year-old boy, I was way impressed. I thought, i got to get a visa and come here. But I remember this pastor of this church. It was a big church of a, about seven or 800 people. 
And he actually, at that particular time, was coming toward the end of his tenure at the church, and his son was taking over because the pastor was, was getting on in years. And he, he told the story of how, as a younger man in Texas, where it gets very hot, he had, he had started an air conditioning business. And he was doing rather well, but he was in church and he was serving the Lord and he knew the Lord and he was raised himself by, a, a Christ, by Christian parents. But he sensed that the Lord was impressing upon his heart the desire to preach the word of God. And he thought, oh no, my business, my air conditioning business is doing well. I'm comfortable, I've got the home, I've got the American dream. I've got the car, I've got the family, I've got everything that I want. I'm doing fine. I don't need this. So he said to the Lord, Lord, if you want me to preach, you're going to have to put me on my back. You're going to have to put me out of action. Within two weeks, he was in a car accident, taken into hospital, hospital where he was partially or temporarily paralyzed, laid on his back and couldn't move. And the doctor said to him, something's wrong. He said, You've got, you're experiencing paralysis, but it won't last. But you'll come out of it soon. And as he laid on this bed, he said, okay, Lord, I'll preach. And I remember that man telling me that story. And you know something, my friend, as the apostle, as Saul of Tarsus embarked on a journey to Damascus to, 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 to castigate and, and to confront and ultimately to arrest and take back Christians to Jerusalem to see that they were imprisoned because they had the audacity to preach the name of Christ as this man violently arrested Christians and was on a ruthless course against the will of God, fighting against the God of the universe, or so he thought. On his journey, as he made his way to Damascus, he was confronted face to face by a bright light, the very risen Son of God, God in the flesh, confronted him, intervened in his life. You see, Saul's ambition... Saul's power, Saul's knowledge, Saul's colossal intellect, Saul's influence, and everything about this ruthless, powerful, fearful man was mere dust in the presence of God. You remember the prophet Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6, he stands before the Lord and he sees the Lord in all his glory. He sees the Lord and he sees the seraphim or the cherubim before, around the throne of God covering their eyes and covering their feet. They had six wings. With twain, it says, they covered their eyes. With twain, they covered their feet. And with twain, they did fly, saying, Lord, Lord of hosts, Lord of glory. He saw the very presence and the power of God before his eyes. It says of the Lord and his train filled the temple. You know, of course, you know what a train is. The very thing that a bride carries behind her as she walks into a church on her wedding dress. He saw the very power and the presence of God. This is Isaiah the prophet, who, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And as he looked into the face of Christ, all he could say was, woe is me, who am I? He said, I'm undone. What am I? He said, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've got a dirty mouth. Not much good comes out of it. 
And he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And you know, Saul of Tarsus, his life was consumed by ruthless ambition, but now his life, as we see in Scripture here, is confronted by Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that if you think that God has no bearing upon your life or that he is irrelevant to your life, my friend, more fool you. You can either meet God now in your life. You can meet him now in your life. I don't care whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, or your 40s. Whatever age you are, if you're breathing, this message is is relevant to you. You can either meet God now in your life and do his will. Or you can meet him when you've breathed your last breath and stand before him, but it'll be too late. And Saul of Tartus met him on the road to, road to Damascus. And his life was confronted by the risen son of God, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I want us to see a life capitulated to the master. Young man, you need to sit down and be quiet. Alive, capitulated to the master. Look at verse 5, please. And he said, this is Saul as he's confronted by the risen and glorified Christ, the Son of God. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What was he saying? He's saying, Saul, all you're doing is hurting yourself. You're fighting against me. You know when the Lord, you know when Christians are persecuted? When God's people are harassed and beaten and persecuted or even martyred and put to death for the cause of Christ, Christ takes it personally. People who fight against God's people are indeed fighting against the Lord himself. But he said to Paul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Paul was only hurting himself, like kicking against spikes. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? What a question. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And he arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. He answers the voice with, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Up until this point, he, his, his only ambition in life and his only focus and his only intent was to destroy anything to do with the name of Christ. And now he responds to Christ with, what would you like me to do? Quite a difference. In his response, we see that Saul acknowledged the authority of God. He recognized that his entire life had been a foolish mistake and he now surrenders his future to the one whom he had persecuted for so long. You see, Saul's question revealed that he he now wished to hand over all decision-making in his life to Christ. This, I believe, is the point at which many Christians never arrive. It's the money left in the fingers of the gloves. You see, I've, through the years, talked to many believers, people who claim to be Christ. Uh, who claim to be Christians, I beg your pardon, who will share and talk of their desires, whether it be with regards to marriage, whether it would be with regards to education, whether it be regards to where they live, whether it be with regards to a job or the future in general. 
And so many, with so many people, I've heard comments to the effect of, you know, I went to a, a meeting and, 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 you know, they were talking about going to Bible college or they were talking about getting more involved in church or they were talking about going on outreach or they were talking about this or they were talking about that. I just decided that wasn't for me. Now, what is wrong with that statement? Let me ask you, who's making the decisions in your life? Because at this point in the Bible, in Acts chapter 9, Paul or Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus stopped making the decisions in his life. That had come to an end. He was in control of his life. The ruler, he thought, of his own destiny. Saul of Tarsus, the, ruler, the ruthless man. But now he comes to a point in his life where he's confronted by the Son, of God, the Son of God and he realizes the first thing I need to do is give it all to him. My life is his, no longer belongs to me. My friend, have you done that? If you claim to be a Christian here today, if you say that you're born again, if you say that you know Christ, have you surrendered it to him? Have you surrendered your life to him? You know, I've often heard it said that a life, if you will, if you consider this chair next to me, consider it to be a throne. And your heart is like a throne. And either you're seated upon it or God is seated upon it. But you know something about God? Something that I've learned through the years? That God is a gentleman. A true gentleman. And if you want to rule in your life, if you want to call the shots, if you want to make all the decisions and say, God, let me decide, you, I'll do the deciding, you do the blessing. If you want to do that, then God will say, okay, you do it. He will not impose his will upon you and I. Never has done. All the way back from the Garden of Eden. We have decisions to make. But you know, friend, if you and I will surrender our lives to God and say, Lord, that's my life. Whatever you want, that's what I want. God will gladly take the throne of your heart, my friend, and you will see the blessings and the presence and the power and the peace and the joy of God in your life. Saul was a fearsome Pharisee who terrorized the early church. He was no doubt heading for Damascus with a company of armed men. Howbeit his encounter with Christ showed him that he was simply just a feeble man. This man who thought he was a mighty man, a fearsome man, now is a blind man on his knees before God. He said the Lord took away his sight. When he came face to face with Christ and he saw this bright light, it took away his eyesight. The scripture says, as we shall see here, he needed somebody to lead him by the hand. A feeble man. No longer this fearsome, powerful, dangerous Pharisee that is reaping havoc among the church. He surrendered, he merely surrendered himself to the purpose and presence of God. He handed over his life to the Lord. His life was capitulated to the master. Fourthly, I want us to see a life consecrated in God's plan. Look at verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in the vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here. Now, while Saul's had this experience on the road to Damascus, confronted by the resurrected Christ, in all his glory, it has left Paul blind and feeble and in need of someone leading him by the hand. Ananias is in town in Damascus and the Lord speaks to him in a vision. 
Verse 12, sorry, verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. The Lord says to Ananias, Saul's in town. Inquire in the house of one Judas. Saul of Tarsus is in there praying. And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now we see the marvelous providence of God. How the Lord brings two men together. One who has seen the resurrected Christ, who's been reduced to his knees, whose eyesight has gone temporarily, who needs someone to lead him by the hand, who's in a room in the house of one Judas, who's praying. And the Lord, and he, and the Lord gives Saul a vision and sees this, Saul sees this man coming into the room, a man named Ananias, and putting his hands upon him that he might receive his sight. And then, and then the Lord speaks to Ananias, who's elsewhere in town, there in Damascus, and says, Saul's there praying, and he's seeing you coming in a vision. The Lord is speaking to Ananias, and he's speaking to Saul, and bringing both their lives together. But look how Ananias responds. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. You see the notoriety of Saul, how his reputation had spread even unto Damascus. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord had brought these men together in such a supernatural way through these visions. They were left in no doubt as to who was responsible for the circumstances. Do you know that the Lord is more than able to bring people together? More than able to bring people together for various purposes because the Lord is in control of all events. Do you know one of the greatest stories I find in the Word of God aside from the life of Christ himself, to see how the hand of God is in control of all events on the face of this earth, that this very planet is in the palm of his hands. And that you and I have no need to worry at any time whatsoever. And one example, one of the best examples I know of, is the life of Joseph. When you consider what his brothers did to him, how they hoped they'd gotten rid of him, banished him, this annoying little teenage boy. And you see what became of that man. And you see how their dastardly deed, their evil deed in betraying their own brother and selling him into slavery, how they were only in a sense fulfilling the will of God. The Lord is in control of all matters. And he brings these two men together. And Ananias is one of the many individuals in scripture who disappears as quickly as he appears on the pages of history. Do you know this is the only reference in Scripture to this particular man, Ananias? He's only mentioned here. He goes as quickly as he comes. But the Lord had a purpose for him. He was instrumental in the early life of Saul of Tarsus. The Lord also revealed to Paul his mighty plan for his life. That he would be a witness and a preacher to bear the name of Jesus Christ before the Gentiles, but also that he would stand before kings and the children of Israel. 
And he also told him on the road to Damascus how great things he would suffer for his namesake. What a deal, eh? Serve me and suffer. But of course, that, wasn't all, that, that was only a part of it. The Lord used him mightily. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, instrumental in spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And he used him mightily for the cause of Christ, my friend. You see, the notion that you and I are in control of our lives, listen, listen carefully. The notion, the idea that you and me are in control of our lives and our destinies is all but an illusion. If you think you're in control of your life, you're kidding yourself. And I want you to know that I learned that as a younger man, that I was not in control of my life. Either Christ is in control of your life or the devil is in control of your life. You're not in control of it. Yes, we have a free will, but remember, nothing occurs to God. And the Lord had a plan. The Lord had a plan in Saul of Tarsus' life. A plan that began before the creation of the world. Do we know this is true? Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah. In the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. It says, the words of Jeremiah. This is his testimony. He says, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 30th, 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came unto me. Jeremiah speaking of himself. He says, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, he says to Jeremiah, verse 5, before I formed thee in the belly. He says, Jeremiah, before you were conceived in the womb. He says, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. If you know Christ here today, the Lord had a plan and a purpose for your life before you were ever even thought of. Before Adam was created in the Garden of Eden, God had a purpose for your life. A purpose and a plan for you to serve him, for you to tell others about him, for you to bring glory to him, and for you to do his work and to do his will. You see, the Apostle Paul, his life was consecrated. It was set apart in God's plan. And friend, you need to know that God has a plan for you. Do you know one of the, most, one of the saddest things that there is? That people will pass through this life. They will be born and they will live their lives for 20, 30, 40, 60 years, 80 years, whatever it may be. And they will die. And they will have never, not even for one minute, of glorified God in their lives. They will have brought no glory to him. And friend, I want to say to you today, don't let that be of your life. God created you and me to worship him and to bring glory to him. That, we were created in the image of God. And Paul, King, Saul had a life that was consecrated in God's plan before, before Saul was even born. 
The Lord had a plan and a purpose for his life. Before Jeremiah was even born, the Lord had a plan and purpose for his life. And before you were born, God had a purpose for you as well. His purpose for all men and all women and all children is that we might bring glory to him. Fifthly and finally, I want us to see a life changed for God's service. A life changed for God's service. Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now Ananias, who is afraid of this notorious soul, calls him Brother Saul. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. Suddenly he received his eyesight back. And he received sight forthwith and he arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he has a meal, he was strengthened and then was saw certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And it says, and straight away, and straight away, it says, he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this not he that destroyed them that called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. You see, Saul, this notorious Saul, this violent man, this fearsome man that was indeed a killer that put Christians to death, thought nothing of the blood of a child of God. He was transformed from a persecutor of the gospel to a preacher of the gospel. From an enemy of Christ to an evangelist. From murder, murderer to missionary. Scripture says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, to the unsaved, foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. He wrote 13 books of the Bible, established numerous churches throughout the Roman Empire, as I mentioned before, and preached the gospel to King Herod Agrippa II. Yet none of this would have, been, would have occurred, had occurred to him had he not surrendered his life to Christ. My friend, God is not looking for ability. Please understand this afternoon. My old pastor used to say to this, this to me many years ago when I was, when I'd just been saved. God is not looking for your abilities. God is not looking for ability. He's not on the lookout for gifts and skills and talents. Not at all. God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. Do you remember the story of when Moses stood before the burning bush and God said, I will send thee back to Egypt? Do you remember the story? And Moses said, I can't speak. He said, I'm not an eloquent man. He said, send Aaron. And the Lord said unto him, who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Did not I? Now go. The Lord said, I don't need your gifts. I don't need your ability to speak. And if you can't speak, that doesn't matter either. I don't need your knowledge. I don't necessarily need your experience. I just need you and your life surrendered to me. In 1904, 
William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from Chicago, a Chicago high school, a millionaire. His parents gave him a round trip to travel the world. Traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe gave Borden a burden for the world's hurting people. Writing home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote on the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. Turning down high-paying job offers after graduation from Yale University, he entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. So he first writes in his Bible the words, let me start that again. Beg your pardon. In 1904, William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from a Chicago high school, a millionaire. His parents gave him a round trip to travel the world. Traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe gave Borden a burden for the world's hurting people. Writing home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. Turning down high-paying job offers, he graduated from Yale University and then entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. Completing studies at Princeton Seminary, one of the prestigious seminaries in America, Borden sailed for China to work with Muslims, stopping first at Egypt for some preparation. While there, he was stricken with cerebral meningitis and died within a month. A waste, you say, not in God's plan, not in God's plan. In his Bible, underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written the words, no regrets. As we close this service today, and as I conclude this sermon, we've considered the life of Saul of Tarsus, a life he was of a man who was greatly transformed for the glory of God. A man who initially in his early days as a younger man sought the lives of those who followed Christ to hunt them down, to take them, to kill them, to imprison them. But then he was confronted by Christ and Christ came looking for his life. And Saul's life was transformed for the glory of God. This man who was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ, who became an evangelist, a murderer to become a missionary. How about you today? You see, when Christ said, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, do you know what he was talking about? A life surrendered to him. And I wonder with us gathered here this afternoon, small in number though we may be, Whatever's gone on before, whatever's, whatever water's passed under the bridge, good or bad, that's gone. Do you know you, you can't change what's already happened? The blessings there have been, the trials and the, the battles there have been, certainly at this church as there are in any other. But do you know something? You're sitting on your chair today and you're breathing. God is interested in you. You may say, well, I can't get about much. I'm not particularly mobile. My influence is limited. 
I don't know many people. I certainly am not a speaker. My knowledge of the Bible is extremely limited. It matters not in God's economy. God just needs your life. And God is looking for lives that he can fill with his presence and his power. You and I, my friend, are called ambassadors for Christ. If you know the Lord, friend, you're on this earth to tell, him, tell others about him. You're on earth to bring glory to him. That's why you're living and breathing. Now, that might be in your own community, or it might be further afield. But one thing is for sure. You cannot, you cannot rededicate your life to God when you get to his judgment seat. If you were planning on doing that, then you're mistaken. When you get before his throne and you stand before him and he's looking at you, you can't say, can I go back? Give me another 10 years. Send me back. I wasted it. I lived for myself. I did my own thing. I pleased myself. I gave you no mind. I just, I just trifled with the Christian life. I played games. I wasn't serious. I went to church, but that was enough for me. When you stand before the throne of God, time has gone. We pass this way but once. It's all between here and there. This period we're in, that you and I are living in now, this life is a dressing room for eternity. We're getting ready for eternity. Do you realize that a lifespan, even the lifespan of Methuselah in Genesis, which was 969 years old, is not even a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. That's why the Lord says a thousand years is as a day and a day as a thousand years in his sight. So I ask you, who controls your life? Are you the ones that makes the decisions? Or have you surrendered your life to, to Christ? Who makes the decisions in your life? Is it you or the Lord? But remember, God will not force himself upon you. As we close, I just want to ask you one final question. Have you truly surrendered your life to the Lord? All the Lord needs is a life surrendered to him. I'll very finally and quickly share with you an experience I had while I was in India in 2003. I came to the church here in 2002 and shared my burden and passion for the nation of India and just gave some information on uh, what I had planned for that country and I shared a bit of a profile of the land and the need and, and so forth and the culture and some statistics. But when I was in India in 2003, I spent most of my time in the villages, which are indeed third world. I spent a lot of time bathing with a bucket and a jug, sleeping under stars. That became the norm. When I returned home and got in this nice bed with flannelette sheets, I didn't know what had hit me. But when... I was in India, on one particular occasion I went to this village and encountered about six Indian women praying. Most of them had no teeth, most of them were illiterate, most of them had hands like a bricklayer, but they were on their knees in this church praying, about six of them weeping flat on their faces. And I thought, I've, I've never seen anybody pray like that before, well, it was all new to me, I thought, we don't pray like that in, in the West. We don't act like that. 
And this, this, this meeting, this prayer meeting, do you know how long it lasted? 48 hours. Now, they themselves didn't stay there for 48 hours. What would happen is other, other ladies, particularly the ladies, some men, but particularly the ladies and the older ladies, they would pray there for a while and they would get so tired and weary that other ladies would come in and take over and perpetuate this prayer meeting on and on and on. Because in the, and the church was operating this prayer meeting. These ladies were part of a church. And just down the street was, some, was an area of land where, they, where the church was operating a, an evangelistic meeting, which, which was for three days. And a thousand people came. One thousand people. I remember preaching on a, on a small dais and looking, and you could see the people in the windows. Taxi drivers were pulling up and sitting on the roofs of the taxis. A guy was stood on top of a bus. They were on walls. They were all over the place. Weren't going anywhere. Just standing like this, listening. They, they didn't mind standing there for six hours. But while this was going on, the ladies were back. These old ladies were back at this church, praying and praying and praying, weeping. Over the three days, 65 people came forward for salvation. And at the end of the meeting, 18 were baptized in the river. Why? See those elderly ladies? They couldn't even read. They weren't good at communicating. They couldn't get around very much. But boy, did they do a work for God on their knees. Why? Because they'd surrendered their lives to Christ. All they were concerned about was that Christ had their lives. And you need to know, whatever your circumstances, whether you can get around, whether you can get on a plane and go to the ends of the world, whether your internet's savvy or not, whether you can read or whether you can't, whether you're infirm or whether you're not, if you're breathing and you can talk to God, you can serve the Lord and you can do a work for him. This church has been in existence for 83 years. If Christ doesn't come back for another 83 years, will the church be here then? If this church was to, if the future of this church depended upon you, you specifically, would it still exist in even 10 years? We see the transformation, the great transformation in Saul of Tarsus' life. And you know something? The long ago that might be, do you know that God is in the business of taking people's lives today and filling them and empowering them and using them for his glory? Preacher said to me a number of years ago, there's nothing more powerful on the face of this earth than a Christian in tears, in fear, but in great faith on their knees before God. And God is able, my friend. I want to ask you who controls your life. Perhaps today, as we can close, close this meeting, maybe it's time for you just to say, Lord, I don't know anything. I'm not particularly able, but I just want you to know this one thing, Lord. I am surrendering my life to you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, where would we be without you? And we now ask, Father, even, even at this late hour, 
We just pray for a moving of your spirit. We're not here because we've got nowhere else to go. We're not here to socialize. We're here to meet with you. And Lord, you are as interested now in the lives of people as you were in the, in the days of Saul of Tarsus. You're in the business of changing lives for your glory. And Father, you're as powerful now as you've always been. Lord, I pray if there are any, if there's anybody here today that senses and knows that you're dealing with their heart. Lord, I pray that they would, above all things, more than anything else, just say, Lord, I surrender my life to you, and whatever you want, that I will do. As weak and feeble as I am, as often, uh, even though I failed as often as I have, even though I have such a, a negative view of myself, even though I have so many struggles and problems in my life, I still submit my life to you. In Christ's name. Thank you.